everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. This week's episode has been graciously sponsored by an anonymous podcast listener. Thank you for your support. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Pinchas is an interesting mix of narrative and sacrificial details. The Parsha opens with the conclusion to Pinchas' zealotry that ends last week's Parsha, and in this week he is rewarded. The Parsha continues with the war against Midian, assumed to be directly connected to the story of the nation's sin with Moabite women, perhaps because the Midianites and Moabites were tribally, or at least had an alliance with each other. The Parsha continues with the second census as the people prepare for imminent entry into Israel. And then we read about the story of Tzlovchad's daughters, which will be the focus of today's conversation, after which Moshe asks God to appoint a successor. He wants his own Eleazar, as he was to Aharon, and it seems that God had not initially intended to appoint one, and poignantly he is invested through the help of Eleazar. After dealing with important issues of continuity in the land of Israel, the Parsha ends with the details of the sacrificial calendar. Today, I am thrilled to sit down with new podcast guest, Judy Klitzner, who is a senior lecturer at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, where she has been teaching Bible and biblical exegesis for more than three decades. Judy is the author of Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other, which is a book that received a 2009 National Jewish Book Award. Judy is currently working on an original digital commentary on Chumash for the website Safaria. Judy, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Such such a pleasure to be here, Yosefa. Thanks for having me. So why don't we jump right in with a sort of a methodological introduction. I, I read your book eagerly years ago, and I, I remember it well and the way that the that your commentary tends to tends to run. So why don't you familiarize our audience with the way that that works? Sure. So my book concentrates heavily on the, my two favorite methodologies in studying Chumash. And I'm very pleased that the presentation that I want to give here today really touches on both of these. The first one, and I think your audience might be familiar with this, is the the light vort, the guiding word. In Hebrew, we call it a milah mancha, that gently guides the reader toward meaning that is actually emanating from within the words of the text itself. It's a word that repeats itself what seems to be an inordinate number of times within a relatively short amount of textual space. Just the word just keeps coming back at you. A quick example of this from Parshat Baha Alotcha would be Moshe's plea to Yitro when he wants him to stay with him, and notice the word that keeps repeating here. He says, please come with us, 
כי השם דיבר טוב על ישראל, והיה הטוב ההוא אשר ייטיב השם עמנו, והיטבנו לך. The word טוב appears five times within just a couple of verses, where Moshe is telling him, my, my notion of good is heavily connected with your presence, um, and immediately afterwards, it seems that Yitro, I think Yitro leaves, does not stay, and immediately, ויהי העם כמתאוננים רע. And then the word רע, the opposite of טוב, keeps repeating itself, ובעיני משה רע. He says to God, Lama hare ota vil You have the re- recurrence of the word bad. Well, the insight, the added insight that that gives us is the notion that Moshe becomes to a certain degree dependent on his mentor Yitro, so to the extent that when Yitro leaves him, he, he, in his mind he turns from Tov to Ra. Um, so that's an example of what we can gain, the payoff from the from the guiding word. And in Parsha Balotcha, we gave that example. And you we gave also that went example. With the, we also went with Ilya El gave it, and we also went with the interpretation that he indeed yeah. left, and that was part of what led to Moshe's breakdown because yeah. he was felt okay. very alone. Okay, well then so I could have missed I'm, I'm testing my, my, my listeners. Okay, yes, of course that was pre-planned so that all these <laughs> things would be, be nicely nicely integrated. And the second the second method that I'm great, very, very fond of is, makes up the bulk of what I do in my book. It is it is exposing the what I like to call the vibrant conversation that is constantly taking place between biblical passages. Passages that borrow heavily from each other's themes and language in order to interpret, sometimes elucidate, expand on one another. And when it gets really intriguing, and that's what I call mining and undermining, sometimes one story will borrow the language and themes of another, not just to expand on it, but to actually challenge its assumptions and even sometimes overturn its conclusions. What we're going to look at today, what I would like to look at, is the story of the daughters of Tzalafchad as a kind of regular sequel to the story of the midwives and the very courageous, what they're called as is daughters, banot in Egypt. Um, it, so this, the banot of Tzalafchad, the daughters of Tzalafchad are a kind of sequel to those banot. Uh, but in addition, I think it's also a bit of a subversive sequel to the story of the Meraglim, of the spies in Parshat Shalach. Okay, so okay. Let's, let's jump right into that. Sure. So I actually, a, a couple words of, of background. Um, I, I, I want to start with the what I feel is of great significance in the notion of names. Starting already in the book of Bereshit, um, Toldot, the, the, the idea of genealogies, of naming people. Uh, Martin Buber writes very um, eloquently about this, that a named character is a person of substance, a, a, a person of record. Um, and so you've got lists and lists of names. And when Avraham comes into being, and in my book I talk about how he is the antithesis of the story of the Tower of Babel, um, where there, they want to make a name for themselves by eliminating names. Avraham is an individual who makes a name for himself, and that's a person who can be in relationship with God. He, a person who basically, God says to him, lech lecha, go toward yourself, find your own sense of identity, of, of, of value, of worth, and by doing that, that journey will bring you closer to God. So it's, I look at it as developing his name is a search for himself, for his authentic self, and that somehow will will bring him closer to God. So that name starts the journey, and God says, ultimately, El Ha'aretz Asher Ar'eka, you will give over this sense of, of, of strong self to, to the nation that will be built later. You won't see it, but you will give birth to it in a sense. And then, ultimately, those people will have that, that strong self so much so that they'll be able to create a society that is healthy and strong within the land. Okay, so that's the background, and when we get to the 
book of Shemot, it seems that everything is going well. Ve'ele Shemot, B'nei Yisrael. It seems like it's all good, and we get the names. They're named people, but almost immediately the names break down, and they turn into this kind of amorphous whole that is uh, turned into slaves by Paro, by his design. Um, and we watch there how Paro gradually um, puts down a strong and healthy people. Um, we're not going to develop this now, but there's one word for me that stands out in this, um, which is the, this kind of anomalous word where there's a description of the proliferation, a miraculous pro- proliferation of the people, Uvne Yisrael paru vayishritzu vayirbu. And we know that this is language that's borrowed from Bereshit, the creation story pruvu, and that's all good and very positive, but vayishritzu doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. Sheretz is like a disgusting swamp creature, and that is used in the creation story. And so I look at that, and to me what that says is is that we've shifted into the into the perspective of the Egyptians who are looking at this proliferation not as a blessed event but as a disgusting kind it's of parasitic parasitic exactly yeah. parasitic um, and all the racist tropes that unfortunately we're so familiar with I think enter in um, starting with that really really strong word so they kind of lose themselves um, and they're reduced they lose their names and and this is classic with 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 slavery where they you know numbers replace names and mm-hmm. we all know how terrible that can be Anyway, so that, I think, is what goes on there. And I think, ultimately, the people begin to see themselves that way. They lose that sense of self that was so carefully constructed. And that's when we start with what I like to call, to to speak in a very anachronistic way, Um, I've always been intrigued by the concept of the imposter syndrome. I read a lot about it. Apparently, at least 70% of us suffer from it. I think more women also suffer than men. Exactly. More professional women, really successful women. And I was kind of interested to see that Jodie Foster, the great actress who won an Academy Award for that awful movie Silence of the Lambs, sorry Jodie, but here's a (laughs) quote from her, she says, I thought after she won her Oscar, she says, I thought everyone would find out and they would take the Oscar back. They'd come to my house knocking on the door. Excuse me, we meant to give that to someone else. <laughs> so if Jodie Foster can feel that way. Yeah. Imagine what, what the rest of us are coming up with. And um, I think there's also a fine line, not that any psychologist spoke about this in, yeah. these, in this language, but there's a fine line between being a humble person, meaning because you're aware of how much more you can, you can achieve or how much greater you'd like to be, and that imposter feeling. I feel like there's between those. To not cross over it. Um, but I definitely right. identify with right. the To know your own worth, but, 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 but to still also, be, have but some also humility. But to also feel agency over the things you create yeah. or... Yeah. Yes, yes, women. I'm yes. with you. Yeah, I'm with you <laughs> yes. every day. Every day. <laughs> okay. So this this kind of brought me to, to look at some of the writings of the, the great 20th century psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott. And he makes a distinction between what he calls the true self and the false self. And he talks, he connects it with the idea of having a good enough parent. That, that, that term has made a lot of us feel very guilty. So I won't go into that. Uh, the parent who isn't perfect, but kind of steps up to make, meet the basic requirements of the mm-hmm. job. And a person who has a true self, they're more likely to have a true self if they've had that. They have integrity, they have authenticity, they can successfully communicate their own needs, they can feel empowered, they have healthy coping strategies. And I would just add, he didn't say this, but I think they can live with, kind of what you're saying, like live with being a good enough enough person. Mm -hmm. Um, To feel good enough, I've done it, I can recognize those strengths and still know know where I fall short. 
Um, and he cont contrasts this true self with what he calls the false self. Um, and he says that person feels deeply unworthy, unempowered, and even though they may be really self-absorbed, they lack a sense of, of competence, of motivation. They have a lot of fear and jealousy, and they uh, an excessive need to comply with the wishes of, 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 of others. Um, and, and that person, I think there's, there's the meeting point with the imposter. They might very, very well feel like they don't really deserve anything in life. And I, what I would like to posit is nothing less than the fact that uh, the notion that the Israelites um, are, suffer a great case of imposter syndrome. Um, and I think where that comes out, um, before, actually before we get to that, I just want to say where, where things get a little bit, would get much better in, this, in the original, the initial story of the enslavement as they're like, it seems like it, it's as bad as it can get. And suddenly bursting through the gloom are these two figures, these two women, Shem Ha'achat Shifra V'Shem Ha'Shenit Pu'ah. The names disappear, and suddenly they reappear in the form of these two midwives who step up, and I would call that an incredible um, ex ex exhibition of the true self. People who defy all conventional wisdom, you might say, right, even even all kinds of like power issues and, and danger, and they say, this is just wrong, we're not going to do it. Um, and Paro is defeated by them, which is truly remarkable, and he's in his frustration, he then says, okay, I have to turn to all the people and tell them to, to get the job done. He says, kol ha-ben ha-yilod ha-yaorat throw the baby boys into the river, v'chol ha Bat techayun. And now we get to our word that I've been looking for, which is the word bat, mm -hmm. the daughter. And he says, let the daughters live. Now, what's, what's his thinking with letting the daughters live? If he's a genocidal maniac, why not kill them all? And the Midrash, by the way, later on, Megillah Testera says, right, that was his big mistake, is that he thought that, oh, if we only kill the boys, it'll be fine, right? Exactly. And later on in history comes Haman and says, we've just got to kill them all, because that attempt by Paro didn't work. He so learns, he learns but really, Paro's there's something unexplainable about totally. the fact that he only kills one yes. side. And I, and I would just add to that that there's this beautiful irony that immediately after he says it, Va'yelech ish mi beit levi, Bat Levi, mm -hmm. and in chapter two of, of of Shemot, you have the word Bat becomes our guiding word. Appears no fewer than seven times. Yep. You have Bat Bat Levi, who is Yocheved. You have she's not called a Bat, but, but it's the daughter, the daughter of the daughter. Yeah. And then you have Bat Paro, who is truly the most unexpected of all Banot. All these people who find that true self and say, we're going we're gonna to stand up for our conscience, we're going to stand up for what's right. So he's defeated by Banot, and that's the story. But, but what I would like to think that that's the happy ending. But unfortunately, and this is where I want to go with this, that false self, that imposter syndrome is going to, is, is going to be very, very hard to shed. But so your claim now is that these women are actually displaying a true self? Is that is that the understanding? Yes, yes. Okay, which is interesting because when I when I think about the way the text represents them, as you said, all of a sudden you have a name or or, or as, again, all the women who are highlighted in the second chapter, I guess I usually have thought about it until now as an external reflection on them, meaning it's mm -hmm. not reflecting their internal state, but it's the Tanakh wanting to draw attention to them, wanting to draw attention to their heroism. But what you're saying is that you think that the use of the name is specifically comes to highlight an internal space Absolutely. of a feeling agency. And I would even add to that the fact that they're called Ivriot mm -hmm. sends us back to Avraham Ha'ivri. It's mm -hmm. it's you know there's all this discussion among the, the commentators um, what what is their ethnicity? Right. Are they 
Hebrew midwives or the Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews. Yeah. I think of it more as an adjective as to their character. They are like Avraham. They are oh, the Avraham beautiful. figures. It also says, et Elohim. Yeah. Like Avraham, who God says, now I know that you're God-fearing, they are mm. God-fearing. They are the people who, who find God. And, and what we didn't talk about is not only are the names missing in this text, God has been missing. God has not made an appearance until the midwives find God. Yeah. They, they bring God into into the story for the very first time. So yes, I do th- I do see that as something very intrinsic. Okay. Yeah. So so we've we've established the banot. Yes. Okay. Good. Okay. So now comes some of the bad news, and that is the imposter syndrome is having a field day within in the desert. There's this repeating trope again and again and again uh, about the the people as soon as they uh, meet up with adversity, they say, "Oh, got to go back to Egypt," and that is truly confusing. They have just been tyrannized. And, they're f- and there's this miraculous redemption, and and the first problem a- arises, and they say, "Oh, let's go back to that to that tyranny." Um, and here, I would just like to to raise to, to bring into this conversation one other great 20th century psychologist uh, by the name of Eric Fromm, who who writes really extensively about the, the the idea of escape from freedom. Like you would think that that that. Would be a nonsensical concept, but what he's saying is people desperately fear their own freedom they, mm-hmm. because because of their sense of myself is not worthy to to embrace it. Um, and I think what we've got here is this sense that I, I'm we're safer with with a dictator with somebody who, who who controls us than we are with with forging our own future. And so that brings us to the story of the spies. I'm just say one other yeah. thing, which that we we spoke quite a bit about in our episodes on on the book of Shmot. Mm-hmm. So there's that dichotomy between the dictator and freedom. There's also the even more basic dichotomy between familiar and unfamiliar, Mm. meaning it's just simply leaving what we've been doing for generations at this point and having to go into the desert into a situation that was genuinely unusual, defying logic, very, very unstable and going into that situation. And so it is, there's something utterly mystifying. You feel Mm. like, well, you finally got out of there and now you keep, you keep romanticizing, right? It's kind of, I think also like the kidnappers, right? Of the, the phenomenon of of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Thank you for the appropriate name. But (laughs) it's sort of this, it's familiar. It's the same reason why anybody would stay in something abusive, right? It's an abusive relationship that is simply familiar and hard to break. So you're right. It's not logical, but it it is very human. There's like, I feel like multiple psychological layers to their their constant recall of the Egypt experience. Yeah. So that brings us to the Miraglim. And I want to just really briefly... We are going to get to Pinchas, everybody. We are, we are, we are, we are. are. I'm talking as fast as I can. No, no, you're great. I'm just reminding everybody (laughs) that we know exactly what Parsha we're in, (laughs) and we're on a journey. We're on a journey, which is great, because I also love that this conversation is bringing together different parts that, you know, in different conversations. So, okay, now we're we're hanging out with the Miraglim, with the spies. Okay, so what stands out to me about the Miraglim story are two things. One is... The, just the expectation that we have at the beginning of the story that these people should be, they should be really great people, mm-hmm. right? They are called, yeah. um, right, Rashe B'nai Yisrael. They're the heads. They call Nasi Vahem. They are the they are the the leaders, the princes. And we also have a nod back to Shemot, Ve'ele Shemotam twice, and then again Ele Shemot. 
right? It's telling us these are people of name. We, we expect great things from these people. Um, I would also add to that that you would think that if you send 12 Jewish leaders to do something, you would probably have more than two opinions that came back and that 10 of them would agree. And what we have here is something else. They don't live up to it. They're, they're, they squander this opportunity. And what they come back at, I, the second thing that, that stands out to me from this story is, is, is the, const- the notion of fear. I see fear everywhere in this story. It starts with the fear of the inhabitants of the land, where they say, right, Ephes ki They could have brought back this freakishly large fruit and said, look how bountiful this place is. But instead, they bring it in order to show how, how terrified they should be. The people are very strong. They are yilidei ha'anak. They're the children of giants. Let's not forget that Amalek is nearby. Like, all the terrifyingly large things are there. In addition, there's, they bring out the fear of the land itself. Um, it, it, they, they acknowledge that it's Eretz Zavat Chalavu Devash. It's a land that can really feed its people well. But then they flip that into Eretz Ochelet Yoshveha. It's not just going to feed you, it's going to eat you. Right? This fear. Um, they have fear of each other. Um, speaking in one voice, everything is in the plural. This like one one voice, and I think the people respond in kind. They pick up that 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 feeling, and they 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 are referred to re- repeatedly as kol ha'eda. There's like this one kind of block of people. I, I think of it as a mob mentality, mm-hmm. where they just they, it's just it's just all uniform. Um, and what do they re- what do they demand? Nitna rosh v'nashuva mitzrayma. There it is again. Let us nitna. Let us give literally or appoint ahead. And there's an irony there with Rashe B'nai Israel, the heads. Now the head that they want is a head who's going to bring them back to back to Egypt. So this, but I want to say the most significant fear here, and that gets us back to our our imposter syndrome, um, and it's just the most overt projection I, I think I've ever seen, where they say, We were in our own eyes as grasshoppers. They don't know how they appear in the, in the eyes of the other people, but they assert that. They are so sure that they are so small. They are, they are these insects. And of course, that, that brought, brings us back to the Vayishratzu mentality, that it's still alive and kicking within them. This feeling of we are, we, we are, we are nothing more than, than, than slimy unworthy, undeserving. And so their response is, we've got to go back to Egypt. Okay, we're finally ready to get to Parshat Pinchas, but we're not ready for the Bunot Tzalafchad just yet. Okay. Okay. So I want to get to something that is almost always overlooked, and that is what I like to call the overture to the symphony. The symphony is the story of Benot Salafchad. The overture comes in the in the chapter just before it. It's in it's in Bemidbar 26. And there, and I'll just I'll really just quickly communicate this, but there are some of our tropes are in there. We have the repetition of the word names, um, but the names are the word name is re, is used exclusively to refer to women. The men are referred to as mishpachot, as families, but but you have v'shem benot selavchad. The name of the daughters of Tzlavchad, Veshem Bat Asher, for, for no apparent reason, this daughter of Asher is thrown in. And then we're, we, re, we name again people whose names we already know, Veshem Eshet Amram Yocheved Bat Levi. And Miriam, we, we know who these people are, but the, 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 the text seems to be preparing us for what we're about to get to. We also have a repetition of the word bat, benot, bat, 
but but again, the story is telling us get ready for a story that is kind of owed to women, and it bring, brings us back to the Banot of Egypt by actually naming Yocheved and Miriam, who were the outstanding figures there, and then it kind of gives us an entry to the story and and connecting us back to the spies by by ending with the words Velo notar mehem ish ki im kalev ben not one man remained, and the Midrash looks at this as a really evocative statement and drives a truck through it and says, wow, not, no man remained, but women remain, right? This is, this, is, this is our invitation to finally meet these remarkable women who are the Benot The ending piece of, of this whole list is yes. that because of what happens in the desert and this whole generation is, is, uh, is said to have died out, yes. the only two that will remain from that generation are Kalev and, and Yoshua. Right. So that the death of that generation is transitioning Total. us into yes. the fact that there are a few women who have survived and now they're in a predicament regarding land, uh, land inheritance. Precisely. Okay. Yes, thank you. Well said. So here's where I think the subversive sequel comes in. And in overall, it's, it's a reversal of the story of the Maraglim. The Maraglim is a story about people who are offered the, the blessed land of Israel, and they feel too unempowered, too fearful, too inauthentic, too unworthy to accept it. They say, no, anything other than that, send us back to Egypt. And here we have five women who are denied the land, and they find the inner strength to say, no, actually, we demand it. Okay, so that, that's, that's the reversal. And I would say also that many of us are familiar with the idea that the story of Yoshua and sending his spies is a story, as we read in the Haftarah, yes. is also a connected story. But this is saying Absolutely. within the same parsha, we have, or within the same uh, sequence yes. of, of events, we have an internal, an internal commentary in that story. Yes. Yes. Okay. Here in the story, we have Ve'ele Shemot yet again in introducing them. The names are repeated, and this is really unnecessary to name them again, but this text really wants to name them and really wants to get, use the word name. And here, the reversal of the story of the Maraglim are there, these were people of name. They were supposed to, supposed to be people of name, and they and they squandered that, that opportunity. And here are women who embrace their name. They, in a sense, reclaiming the the shemot ve'ele shemot of the story of the move into Egypt they're they're bringing themselves back to the midwives um, and kind of overturning the maraglim on the, on their way mm. we also have this wonderful verb vata'amodna they stand up um, I love that story, and you, you, you mentioned Migilat Esther earlier. That that's, that word stands out there too, where right after Mordechai gives Esther her pep talk, where it, you know you, it, this is your moment, and and I think what she's suffering from also is this kind of paralyzing fear. And he says, you, you know, this is your time. You really need to step up, even if you're not perfect. Um, and then Vata'amod, she gets up and she does it. So here, I think this is really powerful. And these women, they're not standing up to a tyrant, but they are standing up to all the symbols of power that exist, religious power, political power, right? Who is it? It's Vata'amod lifnei Moshe, lifnei Elazar ha-Kohen, right? These are all the, the greatest people in their 
system. Uh, those Nisi'im, I think that, that might bring a reference back to the, the, the Miraglim story where the Nisi'im did not do what they were supposed to do. Here, the daughters of Tzalafchad are standing opposite those Nisi'im and showing them how it's supposed to be done. Uh, also, they're standing up against that mentality of, of, of a mob. They're saying, you all believe the same thing. We're going to stand opposite you and say something else. Petach um, Ohel Moed, and I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but to me, the, the thought that keeps coming into my mind is like sort of like making their claim in front of the Vatican, like it's the holiest spot that they can find. Which I, I try to think about what that must have felt like, how intimidating that whole that whole scene must have been. But but here, I'm, I'm I'm kind of imagining their backbone just kind of straightening itself up and saying, "This is this is something that we we feel we're right, and so we're gonna we're gonna just stand up and do it in front. It doesn't matter who's listening." And I want to remind our listeners that this is the fourth case. Uh, within the wilderness experience where you have somebody who brings a challenge to Moshe and says this is a legal situation that wasn't that wasn't explained in the laws that we've received right the we had the example of the Mekalil of the of he who cursed we have Pesach Sheni, the those who were impure and eventually are told that they can bring the Korban Pesach the sacrificial um uh, the Pesach sacrifice a month later, and we also have the 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 violator of Shabbat or the Mikoshesh Eitzim, uh, which was the example before. The Midrash famously connects that example with our example here and says when when they say that their father died, but it wasn't in the story of Korach, it's because he was the one who was the Shabbat violator. He died of his own sins. Okay, that's the Midrash's connection and that Great. desire to connect anonymous anonymous figures with I, our stories. I, I, and one one other possible connection, I I I find this kind of almost amusing. Using the fact that they make sure to say that he was not betoch ha'eda, the korach eda, which was another mob, but ki bechet omet. He's he's an individual even in his sin. He didn't sin with a mob, so they're kind of individuals that. The descendants of, of individual, yes. of an, right. an iconoclastic family, <laughs> even an iconoclastic sinner, <laughs> do it with flair. Like uh, okay, so then I think, and and here there are midrashim that actually notice this when they say tina lanu achuza. That is is a I think a beautiful reversal of nitna rosh. How could you get more antithetical to the notion of let's what what we're demanding to be given is a leader that will bring us back to slavery, and here they're saying what we demand is entry into this land. We feel we can do it. And God's response to this, God picks up on their language and says, you know what, that's right. When Moshe, as you said, brings, God, Moshe doesn't know what to do, so God brings this to God, and God uses their words and says in very emphatic terms, naton titen lahem, give it, give, surely give, as Everett Fox would say, give, yea, give to the people. The story overturns this, the fear mentality, this false self of the Miraglim story and something that's been plaguing the people uh, pretty much from the beginning of their journey. Um, and I think it connects as a natural sequel, sequel to the courageous Banot that we met in Shemot. And it gets the people back on track um, and, and, and readier to appreciate this land to move toward it and to complete Avraham's journey of Lech Lecha. Of course, I think they add their own little angle on it, which is a Lechi Lach, um, right? The men, the women. Uh, but ultimately, the goal is El Haaretz Asher Eka to be internally ready for it, to be spiritually, emotionally, psychologically ready to step up and to create a strong 
healthy society in that land. I, I think the yeah. I think it's the Kliakar famously says on the story that if the Meraglim would have been sent as women, then we wouldn't have gotten to all this trouble in the first place. I bet, and I bet right? he's noticing all this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Meaning, I think he yeah. is. He's noticing. Yeah. He's noticing this without without yeah. putting it forward in a clear methodology. Yeah. But their their desire to inherit is moving. I will just say that interestingly, the laws that come after mm-hmm. their their confrontation with Moshe do not necessarily support what it is. That, meaning, yes. the laws that come after make it clear, but the laws that come after make it known that the land ultimately is going to go to all possible male descendants, right, before it'll ever go to women. Right. And and interestingly, the this this comes through in Halakha later on. It comes through in, in all the Mishnah and the Gemara afterward. But in this particular moment in time, when they're living so tribally and so within their own clans the concern right this text is is really in dialogue with the notion in Vayikra and I think in the 23rd chapter we where land should stay in a family the land of Israel needs to needs to stay there and it has to be inherited and it should never be lost and so they're sort of responding to that I would say even almost uh, intrinsic or sort of their they, they have an, a known a knowing sense inside that they don't want to lose that they don't want to squander that land um, but actually, the laws that come after are a little bit of a downer in this story because they don't actually make that space uh, right. for women. Sure. Uh, so that's just an interesting point about the correlation between the legislation that comes after and their actual plea. But I think yeah. that what you're saying here, how they're bringing up both Abraham and the women in, in Sefer Shemot, and they're really the opposite. They're they're clawing for their ability to inherit land as opposed to squandering it with their maglim is a really amazing way to thread those pieces together. I, I would I would add two points, and I, I agree with you completely that it's it's mitigating later in a serious way yeah. and even with the same language it's all there uh, but I would say that the, the daughters of Tzlavchad leave us with two very lasting gains one of them is I think they do succeed in changing the mindset toward the land Beautiful. I think that's one yeah. thing and the other is that they, they manage to create new laws and create the precedent that laws have to take into account the legitimate claims of women. And I think, you know, mm. as we move forward in history uh, to this very moment, you know, that that grows to such an extent that it sometimes feels miraculous how far we've come with it. Um, the idea that, that women have legitimate needs within halakha, and those those have to be addressed. I, I think also in, in the opening to... To Prashat Chukat, I had said that if in, in Baalot Cha we see like the demise, we have those those inverted nuns and there's a demise, I feel like we're, we're on a slow climb up when we get to Prashat Chukat. And I think that that's, that that's a beautiful idea, that we have our sort of slow inverse, right? Even a small inverse of the Meraglim story. We have this sense that, well, there was a tremendous fear that guided and ultimately led to a very painful punishment, but that as we are in these parshiot, they're very Eretz Yisrael-focused, meaning we think of Sefer Edvarim as a whole book, but it's a blip in time. So we're, we're a moment away from going to Eretz Yisrael, and here we have a voice that says, I want that, right? I want to be there. I want to be there no matter what, even if I'm considered an outsider, right? I I want to, to have a part of that of that project. So I just I wanted to give the last word to the imposter syndrome because I think as um, a lot of a lot of us suffer for, from it from different points in our lives, um, and I think how do we get past it? And mm-hmm. I think what we have um, in this story and what we have in the story of Esther is that sometimes 
the moment meets you, and you you just have to find the way to do it. And you, you have to dress the part. But Malchut. She's got to put on the clothing. Lovely, you know, lovely. She's yeah, <laughs> even if you don't really feel it, but it's yeah. it's a sense that there's put nobody here but me. Um, all right, what Shmuel says to Shaul, Im This is your moment. Just do it. Um, so I found this wonderful this wonderful little story by a, a man by the name of a British author by the name of Neil Gaiman. Um, and he talks about uh, his encounter with a more famous Neil, and he says this. He says, some years ago, I was lucky enough to be invited to a gathering of artists and scientists, writers and discoverers of things. And I felt that at any moment they would realize that I didn't qualify to be there among these people who had really done things. On my second or third night there, I was standing at the back of the hall, and I started talking to a very nice, polite, elderly gentleman about several things, including our shared first name. He's another Neil. And then he pointed to the hall of people and said words to the effect of, I just look at all these people and I think, what am I doing here? They've made amazing things. I just went where I was sent. (laughs) And I said, yes, but you were the first man on the moon. I think that counts for something. And I felt a bit better, because if Neil Armstrong felt like an imposter, maybe everyone did. Maybe there weren't any grown-ups, only people who had worked hard and were slightly out of their depth, all of us doing the best job we could, which is all we can really hope for. Judy, thank you for this conversation. My great pleasure. Thank you, Yosefa. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.